Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you once again for being part of my world. Thank you also to everybody who has been in contact to say how useful they have found the Clinical Psychologist Collective book and of course the Aspiring Psychologist membership in supporting their application process in psychology this year. And there have been a few success stories as well within the membership of people getting onto clinical training and also people who found reading the Clinical Psychologist Collective book really helpful in helping them develop their own confidence in talking about their narratives and in reflecting and being able to draw on strengths and experiences across their career. So if you haven't grabbed a copy yet, or if you're not yet on the waiting list for the Aspiring Psychologist membership, then do check out um, the details in the show notes so that you can go and check it all out on my link tree. But with no further ado, whilst we're talking about the Clinical Psychologist Collective, why not meet someone who is featured in the book, but not in the capacity of clinical psychology? Let's think about other routes to professional qualifications in psychology. In today's podcast episode, I am joined by Dr. Michelle McDowell, who is an educational and child psychologist. She's lovely to chat to, and I hope you'll find this episode super useful. I will catch you on the other side. Okay, welcome along. I am joined today by my wonderful guest, um, Dr. Michelle McDowell. Uh, Michelle is an educational psychologist. Hi, welcome along, Michelle. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Marianne. You're so welcome. So what I think can be really useful is if we give the audience a flavour of where you're at right now, but also a little bit of a potted history about how you got there and why. Okay, I'll try to remember and recall all of that all in one. <laughs> so, like you said, Marianne, I'm an educational and child psychologist. Um, I didn't go directly um, to that route, and I'll tell you why. When I first trained many years ago now, so in 19, no, 2000, 2000, I trained as a psychologist, you had to be a teacher first. 
So I did my teacher training. And by the way, before I did teacher training, I had no clue of what I wanted to do. Um, and so somebody was saying to me, oh, you know, the PGC is one year. And at the time, it was very well funded. So I was like, right, okay, this sounds great. So I did the PGCE for the year and was trained to teach government and politics and history, although I had aspects of psychology within my initial degree. So I um, went along to teach training. After that, started on my teaching career in secondary school. And in my very, very first term, I was a form tutor. Right. In my very first term of teaching, I had a pupil who was a lovely young man um, in year seven. Never forget him. He was, you know, just really sporty, actually, and just a joyous young man, really bubbly in the class. Struggled with literacy, just couldn't get to engage with literacy. And um, of quite a few of his teachers secondary school obviously so you know would comment and say he's got all the answers but it's really struggling so the senko i had this discussion with the special education needs coordinator the senko and she'd organized for the educational psychologist to come into school and during the consultation i said to her can you tell me what exactly is it that you do and after a elongated conversation i had my aha moment and that was it. I was like, this is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to do, educational psychology. So I then continued on the journey. Now, I want to make a distinction because it's very different now. But my journey through to the training to become an educational psychologist, like I said at the beginning, was you needed some teaching experience. So I'd already started on that journey. I had a uh, degree that had some aspects of psychology in it, but not enough to get the GBR status. So I then had to um, do an initial master's in psychology. And then it wasn't quite a diploma, but I, I guess it was a certificate in the additional topics that you needed to become a, um, to, to get that GBR status. And then I applied to be an educational psychologist. Now that sounds like quite a simple route, but it took years that I was studying part-time. I'm going on and on here. Do you want me to continue? Sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you started your, um, when you started Marianne. your education? I'm sorry, <laughs> what a question, what a question. <laughs> Does that feel I'm... okay to ask you that Of course, I'm confident in my womanhood and agehood, as they say. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know, let me think now, because I did my doctorate later. So actually, let me carry on with the journey. So when I trained, um, you needed a Master in Science at MSc to become an Education and Child Psychologist. And it was many moons ago. Um, so I think I did the MA and then the MSc. And I think by the time 2000, how old would I have been? 30. Yeah, I was fully qualified. You were not hanging around, were you? You know, you did your teaching qualification and you did all of the stuff you needed to do to be able to qualify as an ed psych at 30. That's some going. Yeah. Well, I, to be honest, I spent much longer in teaching because I loved it. So there was a much, there was quite a bit of, do I go, do I not go? Because I really, really enjoy teaching. Um, but it was changing. And it was at that stage that we, they were making adjustments in the curriculum again. And 
it was much more sort of paper-based and I was like, mm, it's probably a good time to, you know, transfer and change really. And so I chose to do it then at two, yeah, in 2000. I love that actually it was a personal story, a personal connection, something that you could tangibly almost feel and connect to that really turned your head in the direction of educational psychology. And, you know, I think it is, Oh, it's my, one of my favourite things about this profession of psychology of ours is that we get to work with people, you know, who can shape us as well as um, hopefully we have a positive impact on them as well. But that young man might never know, you know, that actually Absolutely. the impact he had on you. And it's really incredible. Um, but I'm really pleased it happened because it it did, you know, lead you towards this new passion. Absolutely. I, and I think if we if, if I think about my life actually there have been these significant movements as I'm sure it is for everybody else um and often personal that have been impacted and triggered moving on to something new you know um or certainly a change and transition so yeah, yeah definitely it's, mm. it's important that we can reflect on that can't we have you ever done any you know journaling or diary kind of keeping to help you with your reflections or how do you manage your reflections if you don't do that do you know it's really interesting you ask I used to journal quite a bit um I used to write poetry actually and then I I, I used to journal almost I think daily for years and years and years and years and um after I had my son so about um well about 10 years ago now isn't it <laughs> I um, paused and then just kind of have done it intermittently, but not quite ever got consistently back into it. And I miss it. And so I think maybe I'm going to start again. Start oh, I love again, that. I think. It's never mm. too much to start again, is it? But, no. you know, it's recognising the stuff that's been useful along our journey um, and then thinking, oh, I might, I might do that again, you know? What, what form did you used to do it? Did you do it kind of at the end of your day? Would you do it at the beginning of the day or a little bit of, you know, ad hoc um, here and there? I think there were phases. So I think when I was much younger, I used to do it at the end of the day and it used to be almost a kind of um, a reflection on what, what, I, what I'd experienced each day. And then I think sort of post-degree around that time, it used to be something that I did at quite early on in the morning and it was more intentional. So I used to focus on what I wanted the day to look like and it was much more focused. And then I went through a period of time that was very intentional and I got into the, um, more the neuropsychology of it all really. And, you know, that kind of focused intent and being, having gratitude and, you know, um, and so it would be preempt, you know, it would preempt the day if you like. So that was quite an adjustment. Yeah, I think it's uh, children. <laughs> they squash all of our good practices. You know, they bring much <laughs> joy with them. But, you know, our our window of kind of mm. tolerance is just, I think, just a bit more shrunk for, you know, the particular so. joyful yeah. things that might have kept yeah. us well as well. So I'm aware that with clinical psychology, you're employed via NHS trusts to train um, as a trainee clinical psychologist. 
Could you tell us a little bit about whether there's um, funded options available for trainee educational psychologists? Yes, so my understanding of this, and it might not be the best because it's been quite a while now, but it, it transferred from masters or MSc to becoming a fully uh, a doctorate. And I, I think that was in 2000 as well, or 2000 and, uh, 2003, I think it adjusted, changed over. So, but even with the MSc, I think there's a, the, the body of educational psychology, the local authorities all join together. And so there's a funding pot. Previous to the doctorate, you could, for one year, you could finance yourself. So some of the applicants would have a unfunded offer. And then there would be funded offers. My understanding now is that there are only funded offers because I think it's quite a lot for, to expect anybody over a three year period to be able to afford. To are they now themselves. doctoral courses or are they still masters? Only doctoral courses now. Okay, because that's different mm -hmm. than, I think health and counselling psychology are self-funding only and yet it is still right. the three year doctorate. It's very tricky. Oh, okay. It is very tricky. And I think educational psychology has gone through quite a tumultuous time so I remember when I was training, um, there was talk about there going to be a period of time where there was going to be a real gap in educational psychologists because there were so many retiring at the same time. I don't know why that occurred, that that seemed to be such a kind of bubble, if you like, of people that were retiring. But it feels like we never quite caught up. So there's quite, uh, um, it's it's heavily in demand education and child psychology at the moment but there seems to be a bottleneck because because of the funding there's only ever a certain amount of um people that go through the training and then on the other end there are so many local authorities um that are in desperate need of education and child psychologists yeah certainly when i worked in cam services you know i think there was an allocation of um ed psych hours per school and it yes. was like 10 hours a term or something like that you know it was really minimal and so you're having to like almost pick your neediest children or young yeah. people in the school but that doesn't mean that there's not lots of other people who also have you know valid needs for that it's very tricky do you get involved with triaging who to see or is that a case of the school having no. to make those referrals so part of my journey has been um that since 2007 I've pretty much been self-employed. So I work quite differently to a local authority educational psychologist, educational child psychologist. Um, but what ordinarily would happen is the local authority, the educational psychology service, um, would very, very skillfully and carefully carve out um, time for each of the schools. And it would be based on things like um the priority needs of the school in terms of uh used to be free school meals um those children that are vulnerable etc and um they would identify the needs of the school and the and based on the size of the school as well and then allocate time and it was almost always bottom heavy if you like so the primary schools would always get more time than secondary schools it's always underpinned by early intervention as much as possible. Thank you for sharing that with us. What's a typical day 
if there's such a thing in the life of, of an ed psych, specifically you? Oh. <laughs> so I might be very different to an ed psych and a local authority, um, but you just say specifically me, so I will say I do a range of things at the moment. And I think that's the Sagittarian in me. I've, I've always struggled to do one thing at a time. So I do a range. So at the moment, if I look at my diary this week, I am doing some consultation for a company who will be supporting schools with mental health. And they've had asked me to have a look at their program and support them with, you know, sort of um, highlighting what, what they could include in the program, but also emphasizing um, some aspects of the emotional literacy curriculum for them within the program so they can deliver that to schools. I am um, offering some supervision and support to um, an organisation again that works with young people and I'm writing a report <laughs> so I'm I locum sometimes for local authorities and um, so I work like a local authority educational psychologist but they is a Piecemeal, it's a case by case basis. So, I'm completing a report today for a very tight deadline, which is constantly my life. Um, what else will I be doing? I'm on podcast, which I'm really happy to be doing as well. So, um, that's today for me. But I'm constantly, I think this is the, the challenge and the benefit of local, sorry, of independent work is. I'm often offered very different types of work, and that's great. Um, the challenge is I'm always thinking, right, okay, should I, I'm always worried really about a gap. Um, so I'm constantly saying yes to things, and after thinking, my goodness, you know, the bucket is full. So it's it's getting that balance between not saying yes to absolutely everything, ensuring that you have some absolutely well. and i think that's something that we start to begin to be able to learn as aspiring psychologists as well isn't it you know there's lots of people chucking work down at us and we're having to say oh, i'm only one person exactly uh, and i said to you just before we came on camera as well you know oh it's these summer holidays soon because we're speaking in june um you know is that a quieter time for you and you were like no not really no <laughs> not necessarily because the schools do close but, you know, especially skilled SENCOs have been really busy at and they're very good at identifying the children that have needs and um, ensuring that they have put in support for them or requesting support before they leave for the summer. So we're then busy around the summer, you know, we've probably done those assessments previous to and we'll be writing them up during the summer. Then you have children who will be transferring from primary to secondary school, usually in the following year, but they need to have their annual reviews done, you know, to review it. If they had a education, health and care plan, are their needs still the same as they transition in secondary school, for example? Would it be okay to briefly outline what an education health um, plan is for our audience, if that's okay? Of course, education, health and care plan. So previously it was known as a statement of educational needs. And what it means is um, a very small percentage of children, they have a higher special educational need than the majority of their peers. It's usually between 0 to 2%. I think we've got quite significant needs. And so even though the school is putting in as much support as they can, 
um, asking for advice and support on the outside, they feel, and the parents often feel, that without additional funding and additional support, they'll not be able to reach their full, full potential and will struggle um, and have a kind of a challenging experience at school. So the Education, Health and Care Plan is about all the professionals that work with the young person, offering advice, if you like. Um, so we, as educational psychologists, usually do that via some form of consultation and assessment with the school, the parent and the child. Um, it's varied and it's become more complex over the whole lockdown period because usually it was always ever face to face. But during lockdown, it, it became more remote. So some of the work I'm doing now is, is, is remote and I'm engaging with young people online, as it were. Um, so the, the whole idea of the educational health and care plan is for all the professionals that are working with the young person and the young person and their family to put all the information in one space. And that space, that educational health and care panel, that information is then viewed by what's known as the SEN panel. So every local authority has a special educational needs panel. And the idea of it is that it's quite representative. So you'll have usually um, school heads or school senkos will take turns in attending the panel at the local authority. You'll have the special educational needs department from the local authority. You'll have an educational psychologist on there. And sometimes, uh, time permitting, you'll have somebody from health as well. So that panel then meets on a weekly basis. And what they do is look at the requests for an educational health and care plan. And they'll decide on which ones they think are in need of a further assessment and which aren't. And they'll also look at the educational health and care plan information for each child and decide on whether they think that they, it warrants them at this point having some additional support. And if that's agreed, then the education health and care plan is written. Now this is a plan that follows a child from naught to 25 years old. So it's earmarked funding for a young person throughout their, their educational career, if you like. Okay, thank you so much for that. I know that will be really useful for people trying to navigate their way through psychology and perhaps if they're working with um, educational services as well, or perhaps if they just want to, you know, it's often abbreviated, isn't it? Um, could you tell us the abbreviation that people might be seeing? Don't so the Educational Health and Care Plan is EHCP, EHCP, Educational Health and Care Plan. Um, and do you ever work alongside aspiring psychologists or, you know, how can people get experience of working alongside um, people like you in your profession? Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a question that I, I every so often I think, mm, should I get an associate, should I not, you know, or an assistant, sorry, um, psychologist. So I probably could do. I think it was, it's very much about the type of ways that you work in, because I work in quite an eclectic way. Um, I think I'd find it quite challenging to support an, uh, an, an assistant, sorry, I keep saying associate, an assistant psychologist at this point. But I think most local authorities, people keep knocking on their doors. I know there are issues around GDPR, et cetera. But um, most local authorities will be open to having a discussion with somebody who is considering educational child psychology. 
It is a bit more challenging to do shadowing, if you like, for a day because of safeguarding issues, etc. But um, it's not impossible to do some work around an education psychology service. But again, that's changed so much and so much has changed since the pandemic. So the way local authorities are set up. So most of local authorities that I've worked in since the pandemic are working on a skeleton within the office, really. And people are very much just going in to pick up their materials and then working at home, really. So um, it's very different to when I first started out. So that might be a challenge for, you know, being able to shadow somebody. But I don't think it's impossible. So it pretty much is very much about approaching the local authority and asking. Um, I think it's important to say that the educational psychology role again has changed because there are so many people that are now leaving the training and becoming independent psychologists almost immediately. <clears throat> when I first started, it was very much frowned upon because it felt that you needed to do your foundation within a psychology service. But that seems to be quite different now. So people are becoming independent much earlier on. So there are different organisations out there, if you like, or groups of associates. So again, it might be helpful for a aspiring psychologist to approach one of the many organisations that are out there, obviously ensuring that their psychologists are HCPC registered, etc. But um, yeah, because yeah. that you need to be, you're a part of the practitioner psychologist cluster, aren't you? The same as clinical psychologists. Yeah, so you need to be registered um, with the Health and Care Professions Council. They definitely yeah. added an extra P in there at some point, yeah. didn't they? It used to be shorter than that. Um, lovely. You mentioned um, Sagittariusness. I'm a Gemini, and it made me think about, you know, oh, maybe that's why I like to, you know, have lots of things going on. But has, you know, spirituality, excuse me, has spirituality, culture and faith been important to you in your journey as an aspiring psychologist and beyond, Michelle? Oh, I think absolutely. Very important. In fact, I think it's become more so. Um, obviously, sort of definitions of all the things that you've mentioned are very different for different people and mean different things. But I think my intention around life has certainly changed as I've um, developed experience and grown in my profession. I've always been um, a believer, you know, in, in, in God, etc. Although I've always found it quite challenging to find a specific space because, again, I'm quite eclectic with my thinking and my processes around um, belief. Um, <clears throat> and quite early on in my career, I started to become curious about neuropsychology, the idea that you can, you know, sort of um, intend things, if you like, into your life, focus on, you know, focus your thoughts in a direction and the, the behaviour seems to follow. So I've been really interested in that type of research. Quite early on, I changed an emotional freedom technique, EFT, tapping, which I've always really enjoyed and always found really helpful. So that's very much a stay of my practice at the moment. Um, and hypnotherapy which I know there's been, it's, it's ranged, doesn't it, in, in its, in its um, popularity, I think, hypnotherapy. But again, it's been something that's been really helpful for me and I've promoted in my practice as well. So um, I know that in um, NHS and funded LEA services, um, we can often have to kind of stick to nice guidance and kind of 
um, tried and trusted um, approaches that have got a firm evidence base. And hypnotherapy is something that lots of clients ask for um, or, you know, inquire about, but it's not necessarily registered or regulated or reg recognised by the NHS, for example. But does it free you up to use that more within private practice? It does. I think, um, again, ensuring that, that you you use correct CPD and training, etc. Um, I think things with hypnotherapy, I, I think I'm a bit more comfortable in using an EFT because the research is developing all of the time. So there's quite, even though it's, it's, it's a challenge because obviously it's not as conventional as other practices are, it's helpful that there is positive research, you know, out there in terms of outcomes for others. And I do feel that sense of freedom of being able to use it um, much more so than I probably would do if I was working entirely for a local authority. Yeah, absolutely. It you know it allows us to have the freedom when working in private practice to do what's going to work for that client, um, so mm, long as it's mm. ethically sound, of course, which of course I know it would be. Um, lovely. Have you got any advice for people that might be listening to this that might think, oh, you know, I think educational psychology might be a good route for me. What could they, what could they do, or what should they do? What would be a good first step? For example, if they were, I don't know, A level students, or if they were doing their psychology degree right now. Funny enough, I just spoke to an A level student who's thinking about, um, well, psychology. It wasn't necessarily educational psychology, but I was saying to her, get a good sense of what you're really interested in, in what is it that you would like to get out of your career you know um and i think we were speaking about that earlier the idea of connecting and connecting with people i think it's really important i would say secondly it's really really if i did my time again i think it would have been really important to get that shadowing in much earlier on and get a sense of what the job looks like on a day-to-day -day basis so knock on much more doors ask for that you know opportunity to do that um find out as much as you can about education and child psychology so it's not this kind of myth so i think sometimes i speak to young people and they think it's going to be um this sense of just um you know sitting with a child sometimes almost like psychotherapy and it's it's not like like that at all so just getting a sense of what it looks like you know um a child and educational psychology and then familiarize yourself with that area familiarize yourself with schools get some experience so even though you don't have to be a teacher anymore you do have to have show an understanding of the educational experience and the provision and educational provision so get some experience in those areas perfect thank you so much is there anything that i haven't asked you which you think i should have done or might have been useful for me to ask so far mm. That's an interesting question. I think joy, what, what, what do I enjoy about the, the role or do I enjoy it? And what I would say is I've always, I do think it was the role and has been the role for me. Psycho not the role, sorry, the, the topic, psychology as a, as, a, as a heading. I've always been interested in people and the mind, etc. So it, it does bring me joy, even in the most challenging moments, I would say that I've enjoyed it as a profession. 
that is such an important answer and it's something I do with clients quite often as we'll have a bit of a joy audit you know we'll look at which areas of our life we're getting joy from because it is supposed to be enjoyable isn't it Mm -hmm. if it's not feeling enjoyable then it might be that it's you know it could be many reasons couldn't it It could be that you haven't got a good fit with your psychology supervisor Mm. it could be that there's just too much work and you're being kind of consumed by it you know it might not just be that it's you that's the problem it's worth looking at some other factors as well Mm. isn't it and with that in mind I often ask my guests if you've got any advice to support people from reducing burnout when they are aspiring psychologists what would be your top tips I would say when you diarise for the week, you write in your diary about what you're going to do for the week, get an enter in something that's completely different, you know, and have that kind of um, tea morning, well-being morning, well, something that is included within that week, because it can become really intense. And I would say as an independent psychologist, quite lonely as well. So I often try and booking engaging times with others. So it's not just this kind of soul time on your own. So yeah, I think many, <laughs> many of our audience are probably working remotely as well, mm-hmm, aren't they? So mm-hmm. um, I know remote working um, can also foster that feeling. Um, and I, yeah, I do what you say, really. You know, I book lunch and brunch dates, you know. Um, I connect with people through the podcast um, and more widely as well. But being connected to something, you know, that's not just you sitting yeah. by yourself, tapping away is, is really Absolutely. Key, isn't it? Lovely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Michelle. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. How could people get in contact with you if they wanted to, to, to send referrals your way or learn more about your work? um I've been a bit naff on social media I have to say but I do have a LinkedIn page and I have a Facebook page both with the okay. same name Dr Michelle McDowell. Michelle McDowell on LinkedIn yeah. so what I will do is I will make sure I pop links to your socials um and your website or whatever you need in the show notes for this episode but thank you so much for um you know, opening our eyes to this really important area of psychology, which is education and child psychology. And yeah, let us know if we can do anything for you or with you in future. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found everything that Dr. Michelle and I had to say really useful. If you'd like to read Michelle's story, and for that matter, lots and lots of other qualified psychologists' stories, including, of course, clinical psychology, but also including health psychology, counselling psychology, uh, forensic psychology, and um, academic roots into psychology. You can most definitely do so by checking out the Clinical Psychologist Collective book, which you can grab from Amazon. Um, or for ease, you can click on the link in the show notes don't forget that the aspiring psychologist membership is opening just for another 15 people on the 1st of July so get yourself on that waiting list and then you can swoop in there 
as soon as it opens at 8 a.m. Um, on the 1st of July. And that's just £30 a month. And there is a ton of value in there, even for you to catch up. But each month we have um, a live um, group Zoom with myself where we do go through professional and personal issues. There is um, live CBT teaching and formulation sessions. We've got stuff coming up on research. We've got... Um, trainings that go in every month um there's opportunities each week to ask me anything you like um and so it's a really great resource and there's a really nice community spirit in there people are really supportive and kind so if you feel like you're missing your tribe or you haven't yet stumbled across them um or it's feeling a bit lonely um or you're not receiving you know quality clinical supervision perhaps you're just not with someone who you think gets you or is furthering your skills, then why not come and top that up so that you can get the optimal experiences from your from your occupational um, employment? Um, yes, right. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode and I will look forward to catching up with you very soon for the next time our podcast pops in because you should be subscribed really um, at 6am every Monday and don't forget you can always catch up on all of the replays um, which are available through your usual podcast channels but you know Spotify, Apple, Google, uh, Amazon, all those good places so do listen to the back catalogue and I will be along with the next episode very soon. Take care. Have a lovely day. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakalola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.